You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, please uh, use me this morning to teach your people. Please give us uh, ears to listen and uh, hearts to hear your word, uh, that we might love you more, that we might know you more, and that we might follow you more closely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yeah. I mean, I want to keep it open so other people can come in, but it's also really noisy and distracting. Close it, close it, close it. They're not in the king. They're not in the kingdom by now. They'll knock. They'll knock. Come in, come in, come in. Well, there's a great tension in my thoughts uh, over these past two or three weeks that I've been trying to. Navigate. On the one hand, uh, there's a tension that we all have of trying to do as much as we can in the Christian life to be good enough for God. We all have these ten- uh, evil tendencies in our hearts to be either legalists or antinomianisms. Now, these are big words, uh, that are theological words, but uh, I want to flesh them out a bit and talk about the tension that they have. So. On the one hand, there's legalists, and these are the people who are typified by the Pharisees in the Bible. These are people who long to do the law and be good enough for God. Um, legalists often get a list of things that they do, and they start ticking them off. They think about, what are, what are all the things I can do to be a good Christian? So, yep, I've prayed, yep, I've read the Bible, yep, there's all this, look at all the things that I've done. This is what the legalist says. The legalist tries to justify themselves before God through the things that they do. Uh, Jesus rebuked these people all throughout his ministry. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside... You're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So legalists are those who like to show their religion, like to make sure that people can see it, and make they like to prove to themselves that they're Christians. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have people who are antinomians, it's a hard word, who see the freedom that we have in the Christian life, the freedom that I've been talking about for the past two weeks, freedom as freedom to do whatever they want. So freedom to go and sin and do whatever they want in their heart. And Paul writes to these people, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So I'm trying to navigate a path in these classes against, uh, in the middle of these two kind of poles, of against legalism as thinking that Christianity is about what you do, and against antinomianism where Christianity is about just doing whatever you want. So I'm trying to navigate that kind of system. Um, I don't want you to go away from these sessions thinking that I've given you a whole list of things to do as a Christian. 
to think, okay, I need to do mission, I've got to work on my relationships, I've got to think about money and the church and the city. I don't want you to go away thinking that the Christian life is all about doing. Because as I've been saying, repeating again and again, the Christian life is not about what we do, but it's about what Christ has done for us. But then I don't want you to think that what I'm saying is that you have freedom to go and do whatever you like, that there isn't things in the Christian life to do. I don't want you to go away thinking that you can go and live a life of sin, knowing that your salvation is secured in Christ and there's nothing that you can do to jeopardise that. What I want you to know is that the gospel is opposed to both of these things. On the one hand, it does free us from being the perfect person or the type of Christian or a perfect type of Christian. But on the other hand, it brings us into a new relationship with God in which as your love and knowledge of him grows, so does your desire to do what he loves, to do what he wants. And so this will manifest itself differently in each person as we are all in a different relationship with God given different gifts and different people. But commonly it it results in a life of repentance as we understand in greater detail the extent of our sinfulness and the extent of God's love for us in sending his son. Uh, Because ultimately our actions flow out of our loves. So actually Noel, who's an Anglican theologian, he writes that according to Cranmer's theology, who wrote the prayer book and was a big figure in English Reformation, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. The mind doesn't direct the will, the mind is actually captive to what the will wants. And the will itself, in turn, is captive to what the heart wants. Now this, so what, what he's saying is that whatever our, our hearts are set on, that is what we do. Now this can be a good thing when our hearts love God, but often it's a bad thing. It's often a problem because our hearts are captured by love for ourselves, captured by love for the things of this world. But thankfully, the good news is that through faith in Christ Jesus, through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, we're given a new heart which seeks after God and loves him. And in this life, we are still tainted by sin and we still struggle against sin. But we look forward to a day when we will be made perfect, when we will be able to love God as he loves us and as he fully deserves and love others as they need. But I want to think today about the gospel and relationships. So how does that transformation of our hearts work out in our relationships? Now, this is a tough topic for me to talk about. Um, I know all too well the difficulty of relationships. If you just talk to my family or my friends, you'll know that I'm not the greatest person in the world. But the gospel has a lot to say about relationships. So I wanted to reflect on them today. So let's think about the gospel and relationships. Humans were created for relationships. We see a glimpse of this in the creation narrative as Adam is created and God sees that he's alone and says that's that's not good. So he creates a suitable helper for him in Genesis 2, 18 to 20. However, through the fall, sin enters our world and it disorders and corrupts and frustrates our relationships. It broke our relationship with God. It broke the vertical relationship we had with God and it breaks the horizontal relationships we have with other people. It also causes us to find satisfaction in the things of this world. So it 
it corrupts our view of ourself as well. It creates hostility towards others and towards God. Instead of obeying God and letting Him direct our lives, we, uh, we take control of ourselves thinking that we know better than God. And so sin causes us to find satisfac- satisfaction, fulfillment and our identity in the things of this world rather than in God. And so we see this played out throughout the Bible. In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel give us an example of the jealousy that arises when we compare ourselves to others. When we seek validation in the things that we do rather than in God. And Cain ultimately kills Abel out of this jealousy. The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is an example of the pride of humanity in seeking to find satisfaction in identity in the things that they do, in their success. In Genesis 12, come and, come and grab a seat. I'll, I'll pause for a moment. There's a handout over here as well. For those who have just come in, I'm talking about the way that sin frustrates our relationships. And we see this throughout the Bible. Genesis 12, after God has called Abraham and made a covenant with him, Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt and they end up lying to the Pharaoh. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Um, If you're ever thinking about predestination or election, Genesis 12 is an interesting place to go because God calls this man Abraham, calls him to go from his land to a new land, says, hey, you're going to be my guy. The next thing we see is they go to Egypt and then Abraham's lying. It's like, hang on, you're God's guy. You can't... What's going on here? Clearly it's not about Abraham's actions, is it? But it's about God's calling on his life. That was just a sidetrack. But Abraham is trying to take control of the situation, seeking to impose uh, the outcome that he wants in this situation. So he lies to Pharaoh. I could go on and go on about the Bible's testament to the way that sinfulness disrupts our relationships and the problems it causes for us. But the good news is the solution is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has made a way for our relationships with him and with others to be restored. Through the gospel, he has reconciled us to himself and he has redeemed us and given us a new vision of ourselves so that we can be reconciled to our neighbour. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. I think this is on your handout. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we we might become the righteousness of God. Here we see that reconciliation is done through Christ's work on the cross and that we are to be agents of this reconciliation with others. But as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, we live in this in between time of the kingdom. The kingdom has been inaugurated in Jesus now, but we still wait for it to be consummated and fully revealed. 
So our relationships still are somewhat frustrated in this life, even though we have this new heart. We still feel the effects of sin in this life. And so we struggle to love God perfectly. We struggle to put Him before ourselves. And we still struggle to love others before ourselves. And we seek to continue to seek our welfare above theirs. We live in a new way now, but we still look forward to the day and we long for the day when everything will be made new and completely put right. But as is the theme of these classes, the gospel gives us freedom to love God and to love others. This is due to the security we have in Christ, knowing that our eternal salvation is not based on the things that we do, but it's based on what Christ has done. Our standing before God is secure in Christ. We don't have to worry about being good enough for God. We don't have to worry about being the perfect person, about being a good enough Christian, a good enough friend, a good enough husband, a good enough wife or brother or sister or parent or child. Your identity is not found in how good you are at life, in your successes or failures, but it's found in who you are in Christ, a beloved child of God, a royal and holy priest, part of the body of Christ. Now this security in Christ frees us from the guilt of having to get everything right. It frees us from trying to justify ourselves before others. It frees us from trying to strive for perfection and creating standards that are too hard for us to bear. It frees us from needing to control every situation, knowing that the outcome of any situation does not affect our eternal future. And this is particularly true when it comes to relationships. Uh, Tim Keller explains how the gospel uh, navigates the two poles of legalism, which he calls moralism, and antinomianism, antinomianism in relationships. He says, Moralism often turns relationships into a blame game. This occurs when a moralist is traumatized by severe criticism in reaction and in reaction maintains a self-image as a good person by blaming others. Moralism can cause people to pro- procure love as the way to earn salvation. Gaining love convinces them that they are worthy persons. This in turn often creates codependency. You must save yourself by saving others. On the other hand, much relativism reduces love to a negotiated partnership for mutual benefit. You relate only as long as it does not cost you anything. Without the gospel, the choice is to selfishly use others or to selfishly let yourself be used by others. The gospel leads us to do neither. We selflessly sacrifice and commit, but not out of a need to convince ourselves or others that we are acceptable. We can love a person enough to confront yet stay with the person even when it does not benefit us. See, one of the biggest problems that my generation faces, at least I think I'm part of the millennial generation, is that we are seeking an identity crisis. There are so many voices in our world telling us who to be, telling us what to do, telling us what not to do. It's hard to make sense of all the noise. However, this identity crisis doesn't affect just me and my generation, but I'm sure it affects all of you. It affects all people. It occurs because we try and shape our identity around the things of this world. We want tangible markers to say, that's me, or I've done that. Things that we can point to and say, yep, I'm a good person. 
We point to our jobs, our houses, our cars, our college degrees, our money, our family, our friends. We look at our achievements seeking validation from the world and from others. Now this is obvious when you meet someone for the first time and one of the first questions you might ask them is, what do you do? Or if I'm feeling particularly pretentious, I might ask, what is your economic function in this world? (laughs) But the gospel frees us from this struggle of identity, of defining ourselves by what we do. It frees us from trying trying to find fulfillment and validation in other people, in your marriage or in your friends or in your children. No relationship in this life will complete you. No relationship in this life will fulfill you. You will never find satisfaction in other people, only in Christ. The gospel frees us from thinking that if we can just find the right person, the right partner, if I can just be the right type of person, if I can just have the right family relationships, then we'll be okay. But no, no relationships will be perfect in this life. The security we have in Christ through the gospel allows us to be honest with ourselves, knowing that God loves us that, and that our identity is based not on what other people think about us, but on what God thinks of us. One of my seminary professors in Australia writes that the power of the new inclusion in Christ meets our deepest need for belonging and offers the real antidote to the social pressures that surround us. Think about this, how the gospel changes our relationships for parents. For parents, you don't have to freak out if your child is good enough or if your child is going to be perfect. You can relax. You'll never be a perfect parent, let me tell you that. Your child will never be a perfect child. They'll never be a perfect person. You don't have to pretend that you've got it all together. You can be honest with your life that life is hard and that children are frustrating. You can trust God that he is in control, that he's working out all things for the good of those who love him. Now that good might not be what you think. It might not be what you want. It might be hard, but God is faithful and just and he's promised life for those who trust him. Last week I, I... loosely mentioned that the tor- the sorry that the cross and resurrection of Jesus is a divine seal of approval upon humanity. I wanted to flesh that out a little bit more about what I meant by that. Now what I mean by the cross and resurrection being a divine seal of approval on humanity is not that God approves of everything that we do and who we are. Rather that it's that he loves humanity. He loves people and he's working to redeem them and to reconcile them and to renew us. In Genesis we learn that everyone is created by God and made in his image and that there's a goodness to being human, a goodness to having life. This is what God affirms in the cross and resurrection, that there's a goodness to being a human being. But as I've explored already, the cross of Christ also exposes our need for that salvation. For not everyone is a child of God. I get quite frustrated when the liberals try and steal that word away from the Bible and they say that, you know, we're all children of God, so it's all going to be okay. We can all find reconciliation and forgiveness. But we're not all children of God. Not everyone in this world is a child of God. I want to emphasize this because we often downplay the work of the cross when we seek to make everyone a child of God. 
But the Bible says that people who reject Christ and his rule over their life are actually enemies of God. And this is what all of us at one time were. We were all enemies of God, totally opposed to him. But in God's grace and mercy, he has loved us while we're still sinners and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins that we might be reconciled back to him and we might be, become children of God. So 1 John 4, 9 to 10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might have life through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I want to redeem the word love in this instance because it's through God's love that we are now free to love him and love others. And we love in response to that love that he has shown us because he first loved us. So we don't need to... Sorry, we don't love other people because they are inherently good or because anything that they've done, they haven't deserved our love. But we love them because God loves them and because God has loved us. This love is not just an emotional response. It's not just a tingling feeling, even though it will involve emotions. But we see in regards to God, our love often displays itself in obedience to Him. Love comes in many forms, but... The love that I'm talking about here is the love uh, for the good of the other. The love of sacrificing your rights and desires. John writes to the church in 2 John, 2 John, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. This is to be our attitude towards others. This love that I'm talking about, this love of sacrifice. It doesn't mean that we give people everything that they want. Often the most loving response to people is something that will hurt them, something that will damage them. It might hurt their feelings. But we see in this way that God treats us with fatherly discipline sometimes. He wants the best of us so he will discipline us a lot of the time. We see that in Hebrews 12, 4 to 12. But in everything we should be seeking to love God and love others as he's loved us. I want to talk about the way we love people in terms of reconciliation. Through the gospel, God reconciles us back to him. He restores the vertical relationship so that we can be restored to each other and restore the horizontal relationship. Uh Through the cross, God has made a way for all people to come to him. He's broken down the wall of hostility so that every tribe, language and people can come to him through Christ. Now this has major implications for us uh, in terms of uh, racial reconciliation. And I want to reflect on that for a moment. Now I know this is a tough and touchy subject so I want to be very careful what I'm saying. And I would love your questions and feedback afterwards. But firstly, we can't discriminate in our love. We are to love others in the same way that Christ has loved us. This means that we do not discriminate in how we love people, as though one person is more important than the other, as though one person is more deserving of love than the other. But we love all people equally. The gospel is for all nations because Jesus died for all nations. 
for all tribes, for all languages, for all cultures. Our culture isn't the right culture. Only God's kingdom culture is the right culture. And in the kingdom we see all people of every colour gathered around the throne. In Revelation 7-9, John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The cross of Christ levels the playing field for all people because we are saved by grace through faith. This means that no one person is better than the other. We're accepted into Christ through faith by grace, not through our ethnicity or our social status or our family line or our political allegiance. Christianity is exclusive, uh, sorry, inclusive of all people, but it's exclusive in its obedience to Christ. Christianity is universal in that it welcomes everyone, but it is also particular in its confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Secondly, racial reconciliation is only accomplished through the, go- through the gospel. I uh, went to a racial, um, what do you call it, a racism workshop, I think it was, for the diocese. I went with, there with Zach Hicks uh, to be part of the clergy here. And I was very disappointed that everything that we talked about at this racism conference was about kind of dialoguing with people and, and trying to be better people and you know, trying to understand racism and all this kind of stuff. But there was no kind of talk of the gospel or there was no talk about sin. And this disappointed me because racism is not really a skin problem. Racism is a sin problem in that it doesn't, it doesn't matter what colour skin you have, you are still at heart a sinful person and might still be racist. So racism is not a skin problem but a sin problem. It's a problem that can only be fixed through the gospel, through the radical heart surgery of the cross of Christ. So John Piper writes, I believe that the gospel, the good news of Christ crucified, in our place to remove the wrath of God and provide forgiveness of sins and power for sanctification is our only hope for the kind of racial diversity and harmony that ultimately matters. If we abandon the fullness of the gospel to make racial and ethnic diversity quicker or easier, we create a mere shadow of the kingdom. And we lose the one thing that can bring about Christ-exalting diversity and harmony. Any other kind is an alluring snare. For what does it profit a man if he gains complete diversity and loses his own soul? Friends, racism is not a thing of the past that has been fixed. It exists today in our society, in our world, in our city, in our churches, in our hearts. There are many systemic problems within our society today which promote division and which promote hostility between those of differing skin colour. If you don't think it's a problem, you just ask any African-American person. I say this because the gospel allows us to be honest with our sin. It frees us to call evil what it is, evil, and to come to a place of repentance for the times that we have not totally loved God or our neighbours as ourselves. Now I need to say that I am the chief sinner in this aspect. I know myself too well to say that I am not racist. I know that in my heart that I look at people differently, that I treat people differently. But this knowledge brings me great sadness and drives me to repentance, seeking to turn away from that sin and to treat others 
as God treats them. And I pray that the Advent can be a great beacon of light seeking reconciliation amongst all people, especially those of different races. Uh, And there's much more that can be said and that I'd like to say, but I'm going to leave it there for a moment and reflect on hospitality, another thing that is dear to my heart. Um, these six sessions are really just things that I want to talk about (laughs) and how the gospel impacts them and so hospitality is one of those things I think hospitality reflects the gospel it reflects the way that God has opened his arms to all people who are different and estranged from himself and has brought them into his family I really like the uh, doctrine of adoption I often joke with people that, and you guys are going to be in this joke now, that I would adopt a child because I like the kind of sermon illustration that I'd be able to get from adopting a child. Because I just like talking about the way that God adopts us into his family so much. Taking people who are hostile and enemies towards him into his family, sits them at his table and eats dinner with them. Hospitality reflects the gospel in this way. And Jesus reflected this hospitality in his ministry, calling the weary to himself, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, eating with sinners and tax collectors, washing his disciples' feet. But in his ultimate act of hospitality, it's shown in the cross, where he was rejected by humanity in order that we might be accepted by God. So in love, he sacrificed his own comfort, his own time, his own needs, his desires for our sake. The Bible calls us to love others in this same way, to love strangers. In 1 Peter 4.9 we see, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now I'm not going to go into that verse at all because I don't know what that's talking about that much. But the good news is that through the gospel we are free to love people who are different from us. True love embraces the one who is different. True love loves the other as other because God has so loved us in this way. We are free to love others as they truly are, even if they don't fit our idea of what a person should be or what a good person is. We can love others even when we don't agree with them, when they follow the wrong football team when they make decisions that we don't like, when they don't measure up to our values. We love them because God has loved them and sent his son to die for them. Secondly, the gospel frees us from trying to have the perfect life and putting on a show for others. Sometimes we don't do hospitality because we think we need to have the perfect family, the perfect home. We need to have all the trash taken out, you know, all the, all the floors swept. But having our identity secured in Christ gives us the freedom not to worry about these things. Whether the dining room is perfect or whether your husband has put on shorts or pants or anything like that, (laughs) thinking that we might not be the warmest or friendliest person, it allows us to love others wherever we're at, wherever they're at. You don't have to have life all together before you start loving others because the reality is you never will get to that point. And thirdly, this love should not be something that we just do on Sundays at church. 
but it should extend to our whole lives. Opening up our houses and our families. There's great power in sharing a meal with someone. Everyone is equal sitting around a dinner table. But I don't think that hospitality just has to be a big dinner meal or something like that. It can be small, like going to coffee with someone, saying hello to people, grabbing a beer with people. However, we need to remember that it is going to be time-consuming. It's going to be, uh, it's going to cost you money. But this should give us pause not to think about how hard it's going to be, but it should give us pause to think more deeply about how we can use our time and resources for the glory of God, how we can use our time and resources to love God and love others. And this is what I want to talk about next week. But I think hospitality is important because it allows us to care for the, the orphan and the widow, for the young single mother, the old man who has lost his family and friends. It helps us to care for strangers from other countries or allows us to get to know those who are new to our church or to create a safe space for people to be introduced to the Bible and Jesus. Now, I don't think that hospitality is done as a means to the end of evangelism, but I think that it is a great tool of introducing people to the love that God has shown to us in Christ. It's a great tool that we can use to love people, those who are in and outside of our church. Now, I have much more things to say about the gospel and relationships, but I'm going to leave it there uh, and open it up for a time of questions or comments. Thank you for your patience in listening. Any any thoughts or questions? Yeah. Have you read this book? I'm sorry to be put you on the spot. No, no, no. By uh, Timothy George and Robert Smith. A mighty long journey reflections on racial reconciliation. Uh, I think so. It's currently in my room, um, and I read a book. Uh, I was in a mentor group with Dr. Smith, Dr. Um, Robert Smith, and I read a book that was about racial reconciliation. I'm, and I can't remember if it was that one or not, so I may have. So you might have written another one. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any questions about it? No, I just didn't know they had written this book in, yeah. in 2000. It says. Yeah, they're they're big on racial reconciliation, those two. So, yeah, I have started reading the other book on hospitality because it captured my desires so much. Rosario Butterfield, the um, secret thoughts of an unlikely unlikely convert. <laughs> She's such a good writer, and oh man, There's I'm, another book more specifically on hospitality. Yeah, yeah, which springs out of this book. Yeah, Rosario Butterfield. She, uh, she was a English literature um, professor at um, Syracuse University who was big on queer theory and all into the LGBT. She was living in a <coughs> lesbian relationship and a Reformed Presbyterian pastor offered her hospitality and um, welcomed her into his home and she became a Christian over a number of years. So. But um, that, that was just... I haven't read that one, but I've read <laughs> Rosario Butterfield. Yeah. Sorry. Love the, love the, love the definition put at the very top of the gospel. 
here's where the rubber meets the road is what I struggle with too. Like, how do we as pastors, how do we as church members, members of the Advent, just people who are struggling ourselves, members of the body of Christ, you know, there's this power source, the gospel. I feel like there's sometimes a disconnect in relationships. We can't just sort of pull the power down, as it were, plug into it. So, how do you interact with that? What's the, the gospel is the power yeah. of God in Romans and other places too. The dynamis of God, the dynamite yeah. of God. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, the, that's where the road meets the road with your whole really good series. Yeah. How are you thinking about that? You're thinking about the class. Why a blindside on me, Gil? Um, I didn't mean to. I really didn't. No, 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 that's fine. Um, Can I? Say yeah. Something Give me time to think. You brought that up. I was thinking about your hospitality points, and I think one of the things that really keeps people from being hospitable is fear. And I think that kind of answers what you mean about the conduit of the power of God think of it like an electric current if you're if you let fear get in the way of any of your activities then that cuts off the power of god it's yeah. again it's a heart heart problem yeah but sin problems yeah. lots of power well also just that that um his power is made perfect in us as weakness there we go. Mm-hmm. There and we go. so just just that sense of weakness and we come to relationships and interchanges not to show somebody how I'm all that in a bag of chips yeah. <laughs> but you know in weakness yeah. and it's a it's a different approach I mean when you go to a party when you're sitting in the you know coffee when you're sitting in by the water cooler at work it's it's a different way in what the world does. Yeah. I'm going to show you who I am and what I've done and you know what I what I am doing. Yeah. And it's it, approaching it in weakness is the only way that Christ can show his power. Yeah. And the that the gospel yeah. can show yeah, One over here and then that's kind of what I was thinking when Gil said you know about pulling the power down. I don't think the power is out there somewhere. I mean right, you know, Jesus talks about it encountering him and the least of these and it's by relating to other people that we, in our weakness, you know, that we make we expose ourselves to the transforming power of the gospel. You know, through yeah. those relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Horizontal. Coffee. I find a great deal of power when I pray each day. I give thanks for the fact that uh, Jesus came into the world, born, suffered for us, died. And was resurrected. That to me, when I started including that and in every morning in my morning prayers, that opened the gospel up to me in a, in a very significant way. It, it became a more personal recognition of what the gospel says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that recognition on a daily basis. His colored about colored everything I think about the, the gospel of yeah. the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean there's lots of things swirling around my head. Uh, firstly the relationship we have to God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, which feeding off what you, all you guys have been saying about repentance and seeking to um, put to death the things 
of ourself and, our, and of, of this world in seeking to um, remove the things that separate us from God. Um, so I would say repentance is one of those ways that, I mean, to put it in, in another way, to harness that power. But seeking repentance in turning away from this world and turning to God through faith, um, and I think the Holy Spirit as well is part of that power, is the power really, in making us more like Christ. But, yeah, we'll, we'll keep talking about this. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.